0: Your attention to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 10 in your New Testament, our text today, verses 42 through 45. Now, we've moved uh, briskly through the month of May through this little series we've entitled, What is the Gospel? And what we're trying to do is to answer some of life's greatest questions. Um, For the first week, we looked at the question of, To whom is humanity accountable? And the answer from Exodus chapter 34 is God who reveals himself in the Bible. Remember, God spoke to Moses and described himself as long-suffering, merciful, slow to anger, ready to forgive, but by no means does not punish the guilty. And then in week two, we asked the question, what is this essential problem of humanity? Now, we have to distill a lot of problems down to an essential problem when we think about humanity, but the essential problem of humanity is himself, man, specifically man's sin. And today what we want to do is ask the question, what has God done about man's essential problem? So the title of the message today is What God Did. Now to answer that question, let's open our Bibles together to Mark chapter 10. But before we read the text, let me give you the context. Jesus is nearing the end of his earthly ministry. It's, it's sort of a parallel account of what Matt led us through this morning. It started up at Caesarea Philippi where Jesus clearly said to his disciples, "We're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be tortured, I'm going to die." And apparently he was saying that repeatedly all the way to Jerusalem. And he said some very specific prophecies about what would happen to him. He said, 1st I'm going to be delivered over to the chief priest." And I think this speaks of the Sanhedrin, that council who he uh, came before, who sentenced him to death, uh, also included the high priest, Annas and Caiaphas. And they did, in fact, condemn him to death, though they did not have the authority to carry out that sentence. And so, as Jesus predicted, he turned him over to the Gentiles, namely the Roman governor, Pilate. Pilate questioned him after he'd been questioned by Herod, the puppet governor. They did, in fact, mock him and spit on him. They scourged him, which means they beat him with a whip within an inch of his life, and they killed him. They placed him on the cross in his crucifixion. Most importantly, the scripture says three days later, he will rise again. In fact, these prophecies are so specific and so clear. Skeptics of the Bible says there's no way Jesus said them before he died. They must have been added later. But the Bible says that Jesus is God and therefore he knows all things clearly. These are incredibly graphic and very specific prophecies. And a logical response of Jesus saying to his disciples, I'm about to be tortured and die one would think, would be either stunned silence, or anger. Lord, we're not going to let this happen. That's not what happened at all. Instead, James and John, two of Jesus' closest disciples, thought that Jesus' announcement of his impending death would be a perfect time for them to ask for a raise or a promotion. Back in verse 37, on their way to Jerusalem, they said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Well, our text says this. Hearing this, verse 41, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John and calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Well, this is an unseemly debate. It's unseemly because it's certainly not the time or the place. Jesus has just announced, as I said, his impending death. And the disciples, instead of weeping, were scrambling for power and and influence. And believe me, people have not changed much in 2,000 years. They're still capable of some very unseemly talk. As I stand here, I'm often reminded of the year 2005 when our dear pastor, Leroy Patterson, passed away suddenly and I had the great privilege of preaching his funeral service here. And this room was filled to a capacity I've never seen before. And it was very moving and emotional time as we thanked the Lord for our faithful pastor of 14 years. And after the service, people stayed around for a long time and visited and, and talked. And finally, we do what Baptists do. in those occasions, we went to the fellowship hall to eat And I was walking a few steps behind Dr. Patterson's family, and I saw over in one corner a man who I knew, not a member of this church, lurking in the shadows. And I could tell he was waiting for me. And sure enough, as I walked by, grabbed me by the arm and pulled me into the shadows where he was and began to list his resume to me and why he is the most obvious and appropriate person to fill Dr. Patterson's pulpit in his absence. And I asked him, Probably with a little anger in my voice, can you please wait until we bury our pastor before you give me your resume? It was unseemly. It was inappropriate for the moment. And this is what James and John did. Rather than weeping at the prospect of their dear master suffering, they used it as an opportunity for self advancement. But something interesting about Jesus' response here, isn't it? Um, they got mad, the other disciples, the 10 they are called here, but Jesus didn't because this was an ongoing problem that Jesus had observed everywhere they went. This seems to be the primary topic of conversation. For example, in Luke chapter nine, verse 46, it says, an argument started among them as to which of them would be the greatest. Here's Jesus performing miracles and their question is, which one of us is number two? Luke 22. In fact, it's even worse than that even after this event that's recorded that I just read, the very night of Jesus' arrest, Luke records, there arose a dispute among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And by the way, the 10 were indignant, not because James and John had created a cultural faux pas or that they'd asked for a promotion. I think they were angry because James and John had beaten them to the front of the line. They all believed they were the ones who were deserving to sit on his right and on his left. There's some evidence of that. Remember Peter, when Jesus said what was going to happen, said, Not me, Lord. All these other guys may abandon you, but I never will. Jesus told him that he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed. Judas, of course, always thought that he knew better than Jesus and became his traitor. How would Jesus respond to such an inappropriate conversation? Well, it's probably not what we humans would expect. We might expect anger, we might expect personal hurt. We might expect him to just give up on these guys and walk away from them, but it's not what he did. Verse 42 gives us an unexpected response. These men had been selfish, not thinking of Jesus. They'd been unsympathetic to his plight. Most of us would have said, well, who needs them? And just left them to fight it out, not Jesus. Verse 42 says, calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them, but it's not this way among you. Jesus recognized disunity in the ranks and he knew it was a threat. He knew that he would not long be with them and he had placed upon these men the responsibility of taking the gospel all over the world. And so his action is surprising, but it is immediate. He doesn't let it fester. He calls them to himself right then and there, and he makes a decisive statement. He says, look, you're behaving like lost people. Now I remind us quite often here that it should not surprise us when lost people behave like lost people. We should not have the expectation of lost people, whether in the government or in the entertainment industry, or our neighbors, that they behave like saved people. They act lost because they're lost. But we should have a different expectation of one another in the church, right? Those who claim to be born again, who have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And so he says, look, you're not to behave like the Gentiles. When they get a title, they use it to get the next title. When they get some authority, they step on necks and throats on the way to the corner office. Not so among you, you're not to lord it over them. Because he knew these men would have authority after he left. They would be his apostles, his sent out ones, his ambassadors. It's amazing to me the gentleness of the Lord. He didn't blow up. He didn't call them out. He was gentle with them. And if there's anything that describes Jesus' treatment of sinners, it's gentleness. In fact, when he described himself, he says... Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I am gentle of spirit, he said. But as I look at how we interact with one another, particularly on social media, as I watch how the evangelical church debates social issues and theological issues, I'd have to say one of the last words that comes to my mind is gentle. We tend to be incredibly harsh with one another. We think the worst of one another. If we don't walk lockstep with one another on every nuance of theology, we tend to put one another down or think that person is less spiritual than I. Jesus' action was decisive and immediate, It was gentle, it was thoughtful and clear. He says, look, reason with me. You, You resent it and you see in how lost people treat one another something you want to avoid and now you're behaving just like that. He says, it's not to be that way with you. You are to be distinct and clear in your attitudes, actions, and speech. And friends, I think that's what Jesus meant when he says, we are the salt and light of the world. And if the salt has lost its saltiness, it's good for nothing. If we're not any different in the world, why are we here? God leaves us in the world to influence the world for the gospel, not to become just like the world. And then he turns the corner and, and says, look, Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. It's interesting, isn't it, that he does not rebuke their ambition for greatness. In fact, he seems to encourage it. You want to be great? Here's here's how to be great. What he does, though, is he redefines greatness in Christian terms. A lost and dying world says greatness is having everyone look up to you and you looking down upon them, greatness is having everyone. Meeting your every wish. Greatness is having everyone on a speed dial to take care of what you need and bring your comfort. Jesus says, no, you want to be great? Here's how to be great. Be the greatest servant. And you know what that word servant here is? It's the akinos, where we get the word deacon. And I'm so pleased with our deacon body here. A group of men who have been trained and understood what being a deacon is. It's not lording it over people. It's not having people look up to them as some spiritual guru. It's quietly and often anonymously serving the physical needs of this church. Widow women, children, and those who are less fortunate, meeting the benevolence needs. This is what he's talking about. If you want to be thought of great in the eyes of God, serve quietly and serve one another. And then he says in verse 44, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all this is an even stronger Greek word than diakonos it's doulos which means slave if you want to be first be the lowest slave this is how the apostle Paul had to come to view himself before Paul was saved he was on that career trajectory of human greatness he had an incredibly gifted mind he had a great education he was a leader of men. People were looking at him as the next great leader of Israel. And then on the road to Damascus, he saw the risen Lord Jesus, and he says, I counted all of my resume refuse, garbage, worse than that, actually. And then we find him in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, writing to that church who had so many problems. He says, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants. For Jesus' sake, Paul viewed himself as the slave of the Corinthian church, and every other true church. He owed certain things to them. He was there not to be served, but to serve. I was reading, a, rereading a book this week that's four hundred years old. Not my copy. My copy is pretty new, but originally it was written four hundred years ago by a man by the name of Richard Sibbs, who was a Puritan pastor. Sibs wrote a lot of things, but my favorite book he wrote is called A Bruised Reed. He talks about the gentleness of the Lord Jesus, that a bruised reed he would not harm and a smoldering flax he would not extinguish. And he says, that's the way we ought to be. The people are hurting and they have problems. And and rather than being harsh and critical and unmerciful to them, we need to follow the example of Jesus in his gentleness and kindness. And Sibs said this, In his book, quote, the greatest men are severe with themselves and gentle with others, end quote. As I read that sentence, I was struck with conviction. Because even as Christians, sometimes we adopt the definition of greatness from the world. That everyone looks up to me and I look down upon them. everyone's here to serve me and and not vice versa. And, and Jesus says, you want to be great, here's how to be great. And Sibs says the same thing. If, if you want to be a, one of the greatest men, be severe with yourself and gentle with others. What does it mean to be severe with yourself? It means that you reserve your harshest criticisms for the man in the mirror and not other people. But unfortunately, we tend to do just the opposite. We're very biased towards ourselves, but hypercritical to others, right? So it, someone who is your peer, or you might view it as your competition, says something a few degrees that off that you disagree with, you label them a heretic, or a liberal, or woke. But if you let something come from your lips, that's not exactly what you meant to say. You give yourself all the benefit of the doubt, right? Well, that's not what I meant. You know me. You know my character. I would never do something like that. Sib says we ought to do just the opposite. We ought to serve reserve our severest criticisms for ourselves and yet be merciful and kind with others. This is in essence what Jesus is saying. Now, the real issue, though, in this verse is that the disciples had not yet come to terms with Jesus' true mission. They were still holding on to their preconceived notions that they shared with the Pharisees and really probably the majority of people in Israel of what the Messiah would be like when he came. They had been told that he would be a military leader. And in their historical context, that meant overthrowing the Romans, reestablishing Israel as an independent and autonomous nation, ruling with an iron scepter, having a great army and punishing all the enemies of Israel. And so James and John and the other disciples wanted to get in on the spoils of war. They didn't want to miss any benefit or blessing from standing near Jesus. And so he they, they said, Lord, grant us this when you come in your glory. Let one of us sit on your left and one on your right. They weren't asking for more responsibility, although it's exactly what Jesus had told them all the way there. What did he say up in Caesarea Philippi? If anyone wants to follow after me, he must do some things. He must pick up his cross. Daily and follow me. He told them to count the cost. It's going to be a hard ride. But they weren't thinking about the suffering part of being a disciple. They were thinking about the blessings. And so let's just read that conversation and how it went. Back up to verse 37. They, that is James and John, said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with, what, with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. <laughs> no hesitation. We are qualified. We are ready. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. Now the metaphor of a cup is used several times in the Bible, Old and New Testament. Sometimes it's used in a positive sense as it is in the 23rd Psalm where David says, my cup overflows. That is, God is so kind and benevolent to me I can't contain his blessings and they spill over the side. But more often, it's used negatively. This is the way Jesus used the cup the night of his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, He, after he had given them the Lord's Supper, instituted that, They walk over to the garden of Gethsemane and Jesus asked his inner circle to pray with him. And he went on further in the garden and what he prayed was this, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, this cup of wrath, this cup of suffering. And James and John and the others who thought so highly of themselves that they could stand anything and that they were ready for anything the Lord called them to do, could not even pray for one hour. Jesus says, you will share in this cup. And, of course, we know all of the apostles suffered greatly. Most of them martyred, a very violent death because of their relationship to Jesus. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And what Jesus does and says next rocked their world because he was thirdly an unanticipated Savior He says in verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Who is this Son of Man? Well, that's Jesus' favorite designation for himself. We were introduced to this phrase, Son of Man, when we studied the book of Daniel a few summers ago. It's the Messiah. It's the promised one. Jesus' primary purpose in his first coming, his first advent, his incarnation, was not to receive, but to give not to be served, but to serve. And when you read the Gospels and you just follow the timeline of Jesus' life, from the time he started his earthly ministry, he woke up early, spent time with the Father, and he worked night and day healing the sick, traveling from town to town, teaching the masses, feeding the hungry. Remember at times the crowds were so great that people have to cut off the rooftops just to get down to him. And yet... He patiently waited and healed and prayed and taught. But even those wonderful things that he did, those miracles that he performed, were not his primary purposes. We find Jesus' primary purpose for coming into the world, and the key verse, I think, in all the Gospel of Mark, if not all the Bible, and the answer to our question today, what has God done about man's essential problem in the last phrase of verse 45. He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, comma, and to give his life a ransom for many. This is why Jesus came. This is what God has done about man's sin problem. He sent Jesus in the world to live a perfect life so that he could die as payment for sin. This is what God has done what man could never hope to do in his own. You could look far and wide among the seven billion people on planet Earth and not one is qualified to pay sin's price because all seven billion of us have the same problem. We're sinners too. Sinners by nature, that sin that was passed down from our first parents, Adam and Eve, and sinners by choice. There was a price that had to be paid that no man could pay. That word ransom means the price paid to release a prisoner from captivity. It's not bail, it's not a temporary reprieve, it is the ransom, the price that is paid for permanent freedom. Many of us rejoiced when we saw the young soldier who was released from captivity in Russia a couple of weeks ago. But I can promise you, though we may never know it, there was a price that had to be paid for that. There is a price that has to be paid for freedom. And, and friends, Jesus has paid that price. That's why he came. Theologically, we call it the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. The doctrine that the just died for the unjust. The doctrine that the guilty took to play, the, 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 the innocent rather took the place of the guilty on the cross. And that is the core of the gospel message. And if you read Paul's letters, you'll find it almost every page, this doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Just listen to Galatians 2.20. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. 1 Timothy 2.6, he gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. Titus 2.14, speaking of Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. What is man's problem himself, his sin? What has God done, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Why? Because of what Christ has done. He willingly condescended to leave the glories of heaven. God of God, worshipped day and night by the angels. Left the glories of heaven and condescended to be conceived as a human in the womb of a virgin girl. Was born as men are born. Lived a righteous, holy, sinless life for 30 years. Began his earthly ministry. Continued in righteousness and holiness. Tempted in every way we are. Tempted directly by Satan. And yet without sin, he went to the cross willingly. And as Isaiah said, as a sheep before its slaughter. Humbled not a, he muttered not a word. And he died in place of all who would ever believe. That's what God has done. About man's sin problem. He provided salvation for those who didn't deserve it. And this certainly is an unmerited salvation. What do we call unmerited favor? It's the word grace, isn't it? Ephesians 2 8 and 9, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one could boast. Now, what we've seen in these three weeks, to whom are we accountable? The God of the Bible who's holy and just and will not overlook sin. He has to punish it. That's how just and holy he is. What's our basic problem as humans? All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all stand guilty, convicted before our holy God who knows everything about us. What has God done about it? We've seen today. He has sent Christ into the world to live a perfect Life so that he could die in the place of sinners like us. And then next week, the question is, how do we get in on that? How do we appropriate salvation? Well, I just read to you, through faith. Belief, in other words. You see, the, the human mind and heart is that I have to do something to earn something, right? That's why Paul called the simple message of the cross a stumbling block to his Jewish friends. Seems too simple. They were conditioned to believe they had to do something or keep something or separate themselves from the average person to get God's notice. Paul says, no, because that's what he believed. He thought the reason he had to study Hebrew so hard and The reason he had to study the Old Testament law and keep it so meticulously and and why he was so zealous for the law is because by keeping the law, he thought he could win God's love. But then when he saw himself as he really was, struck blind on the road to Damascus, he knew he could never hope to attain that kind of holiness on his own. So if he were to receive it, it had to be a gift from God. And friend, if that's true of the Apostle Paul, it's true of every one of us. Salvation is by grace. The word grace means unmerited favor. It means gift. It has to be appropriated by faith. Simple belief that what Christ did, he did in your behalf. You put your faith and trust in what he did and no faith or trust in what you can do. The Bible says, whoever comes to the Lord like that, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord like that will be saved. To whom are you accountable? The God of heaven revealed in the Bible. What is your problem? Yourself, your sin. What is the solution to that problem? Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished on the cross. What is the proper response to that? Simple faith and belief. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the simplicity of the gospel. So simple that even children can understand it and be changed by it. But Lord, overwhelmingly, unexpected. Father, just like the disciples and Pharisees were looking for a military king and sovereign who ruled with an iron scepter, so many in our culture are looking for salvation in all the wrong places. They're trying to do something or change something or believe something that you never intended. Father, the answer to our Greatest question How can a man be made right with God? Is simple faith alone in Christ alone? So, Father, I, I pray as we try to communicate the simple gospel with this community that that would be on our lips. Salvation is by grace, it is a gift appropriated through faith, not of works. God will not share his glory. And so he does for us through Jesus what we could never do for ourselves. He paid the price to set us free. Thank you for the blood of Jesus. Thank you that we're forgiven as his children. Help us, Father, to share that good news message with everyone we know. And we leave the results to you. May many be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast.